Hi, and welcome to the FBCC Nature Journal, the podcast for everyone who loves nature. We're coming to you from the beautiful campus of Flathead Valley Community College at the foot of the Swan Mountain Range. I'm John Fraley, longtime instructor in wildlife conservation here at the college, and I also served 40 years with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. In the Nature Journal, we focus on the critters and quirks of nature found on the campus and the wide surrounding Flathead Basin, all the way up to Glacier Park and even outside the basin sometimes. Our producer is Colin Burkhart, an employee here at the FVCC Library, and he'll be joining me today. And thanks to Morgan Ray, the library director, for offering the library as our podcast home. Well, today we're going to be talking about deer and humans. And deer and humans have had a deep relationship with each other over the years. Our ancestors were practically made of deer. In other words, they ate so much deer that their, you know, their tissues and so on were, were made of the elements of the deer to a large extent. And when Lewis and Clark came across the continent, they relied heavily on deer, both mule deer and whitetail, for sustenance. And today, Colin's with me. And Colin, you recently saw a deer right in somebody's yard, right? It was a little while ago. It wasn't, I wouldn't say recently. It was back in uh, August. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was right in front of my uh, uncle's house when I was, went down to visit him in Missoula. Yeah. It was a pretty uh, urban area. And I got a little over five feet away before I could take a real good picture, and it looked right at me and everything. They seemed to only startle at loud noise over in uh, urban places like that. It seems like they get really used to being around people. Well, that's for sure. And that's an actual rising, a very big rising issue in Montana is the urban and suburban deer mm. that, that we're running into because they can cause a lot of problems too. Well, Richard Nelson, we'll talk more about that. Richard Nelson actually wrote an entire book on our relationship with deer called Heart and Blood, Living with Deer in America. And we'll get into that a little later in the show, but he, he talks about how, how closely we've been tied to deer our entire existence. So deer are ruminants. They chew their cud. They actually are able to digest cellulose because they can ferment it in their multi. Really? Thing. You bet. I thought that was a thing that only cows did. No, no. The, the deer family does that. They're ruminants and, and other, other wildlife as well, certain other species. And we have uh, the family is really Cervidae, and there's a big difference in size. The Andean Puvu, how big do you think the Andean Puvu is? How, how much would you guess it weighs? Oh, it's probably not too big. I'd say, uh, <laughs> I don't know how much an average deer weighs. Putting you on the spot. I, I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have a frame of reference, yeah. so this might sound silly. Uh, like 60 pounds? That's not a bad guess. The Indian Puvu weighs about 22 pounds. <laughs> so that's actually quite high. And then you look all the way up to the deer family. The largest member of the deer family is what, do you think? Oh. That's a moose. Yeah. Okay, so how big can a moose be? Well, that would be way on the other end of the spectrum, like several hundred pounds. Several, yeah, 1,600 pounds a oh. moose can get to be 1,600 pounds. <laughs> Just so, a little bit shiny. Yeah, well, you know, 22 to... Uh, all the way up to 1,600 is a big difference in the deer family. And the deer family is distinguished from all other groups by the presence of antlers. Now, antlers are bone. They shed them, of course, in the winter, and then they grow them and grow velvet in the spring and summer. Um, so they are very unique that way. And as we said, the, some of the members of the deer family include the moose, the white-tailed deer, the mule deer, and the caribou. And again, antlers are, are bone. A lot of people don't understand that they're bone. Horns are different, but horns aren't re, uh, regenerated. They aren't shed and regenerated. And they're made more with keratin, like your fingernail material. Yeah, and when you say with velvet in the summer, well, what does that mean? 
Velvet is a coating on the, the growing antler of the deer, elk, mm. or moose. And underneath, the blood is flowing and so on. It looks kind of like a, it looks like a car, like a velvet on their on their antlers and they look much larger and that's so, that's so they tend, does that tend to mean that they're softer or they they are they're not hardened yet in fact that's part of the reason for that evolutionarily is that so the the adult male has these soft antlers mm. and so the doe can can kind of shoo them off real easily when they have fawns so they're not bugging them with the fawns that's that's the theory anyway um for those those deer family members and so they drop these antlers in the winter and um, then they grow them again in the in the in, in the spring, and it goes through that cycle. And it's controlled by actually by uh, the period of light. And it's called the you know the uh, photo period. Actually determines when they are going to drop their antlers and when they're going to grow new ones. Their 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 hormones react to that photo period that that we of course we have that varies so that seasonally. Must be very different for say caribou who are in the north where it's it can yeah. be dark for almost a good portion of the year versus down good here. Good point. They but they use that key to know when to move the, uh, grow their antlers or when not to. So at any rate, the white-tailed deer. Let's start off with the white-tailed deer. That's the large, the largest white-tailed deer taken in Montana. It was about 275 pounds dressed, which is 370 pound live, and and that's just the deer that we weighed at our check stations. But if you take a look, we get this antler here. Oh, you yeah. can see the white-tailed deer has different points that come off of a single main beam. That's how you determine the white-tailed deer. Whereas the mule deer, it has an even split in the, in other words, there would be an even, you would see one of these V's here and another V over here. It wouldn't be single points off of, it would be actually, uh, they're divided evenly as the, as the antler goes up from the base to the top. So they're, they're quite a bit different than the mule deer, and we'll get into a little more about that as well. But they usually live in the lower elevations in the river and creek bottoms, uh, timber and brush, and they're kind of more of a reddish brown color, like that picture you showed me of that deer at your relative's house, kind of mm -hmm. reddish brown, mule deer more of a gray. Then, as I said, the antlers branch off a single main beam. And when they run, the thing that really, what's, what really stands out when the white-tailed deer runs uh, from it's, behind? It's a bit more of a gallop, isn't it? Or it's, like, it's more of a gallop, but what's, what oh, sticks up? Uh, also the tail. That's course. right. And that, <laughs> that would have been the yeah. obvious answer. <laughs> and they call that the flag, actually, when it runs away from you and you see that flag come up when they're alarmed or when they're running. The typical white-tailed buck weighs about 250 pounds, and the does weigh about a third less. Now, that's, that's live weight, of course. Hmm. They have a relatively small home range, and they rut in November. Um, and people that hunt white-tailed deer, they hunt by rattling and grunting. And I don't know if you've heard that, but I'll demonstrate it a little bit here. So the hunter's out there trying to attract the whitetail, and they'll take two of these, like I have these two antlers I have, and uh, they'll rattle them together like this. And that can sometimes attract that whitetail deer. And then the other thing that buck whitetail is doing at times is grunting. And this is what the grunt tube sounds like. I'm take the mask off. Sound pretty good? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so those are some of the, the uh, sounds so the that attract the deer when you're hunting them, the white-tailed deer. The rattling of the antlers is supposed to be like male bucks flooding heads, right? That's, That's supposed exactly to be right. what they do to, for fighting for territory? That's exactly right. 
And some of the deer hunting traditions that, um, uh, that come are a little different between mule deer and, and whitetail. The mule deer is the largest, uh, the larger of the deer. And the largest taken in Montana was 340 pounds dressed, probably about 453 live weight. And when Lewis and Clark were coming across the continent, they first described a mule deer. Some people say, well, Lewis didn't describe a mule deer. Yes, he did. He just didn't get it published very quickly after they got back from the uh, expedition. But um, as they neared the Teton River in 1804, 1805 in South Dakota, they were captivated by this deer they hadn't seen before. It doesn't look like the one they'd seen in the eastern United States. And Lewis actually suggested the name mule deer. So he was the first one. And he, one of the ones, the specimens that he had, he reported measuring the ears at 11 inches long and three and a half inches wide. That is a big ear. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit bigger than I would have thought for, for most deer. Yeah, that's a, that's a mule deer, and that's why they, you know, he named it uh, the mule deer. Mm. And he said that they're rarely found in anything other than a rough country in the open, not timbered creek bottoms like the whitetail. And they would bound. They bound like all four. They bound along. They're different. They're grayer. Um, and they have a larger home range. They're more gregarious. You can see them, in, you often see them in more of a herd situation. And they can migrate up and down in elevation based on the snow and, and so on, the winter versus the uh, summer and spring. They hunt in November, uh, rut in November. And it's really, I don't know, I guess some people might be able to uh, antler uh, draw in a mule deer, but they don't really rattle for mule deer like they do for whitetails. They're just not uh, as drawn in by that. So, as I mentioned, Richard Nelson uh, from Alaska wrote a book called Heart and Blood, Living with Deer in America, Creatures on the Edge. And he says to him, he says in that book, quote, and I quote, I know myself as a predator, know the hunter in me, know the communion of meat and blood that shapes my body from those of deer. And his son he calls a boy made of deer. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say his boy is made of deer? Well, like you were saying earlier, John, I think you mean people who hunt often enough tend to eat more venison i guess is that is that's that right and they, their body is composed of a lot of those the sustenance that they got out of the deer so all of our all of our generations have done that uh, especially in the past and nelson also talks about how freezers and grocery stores foster the modern illusion that life sustains itself without taking other life in other words he's saying you have to kill other life to sustain yourself. But when people can get everything from the grocery store, they kind of lose track of that. And this whole thing has come about with the locavore movement where more and more people, even younger people, are starting to hunt more and realize that that, uh, that food is very valuable, that, that fresh, natural food. And in fact, in Montana, they, uh, hunters bag about 110,000 deer per year. And they have about a 62% success rate in getting those deer. They spend a lot of money on food, lodging, ammunition. So it's a big part of the Montana economy. And if you look at the amount of meat they get and um, figure $4 a pound, they're getting about $24 million worth of meat each year in Montana. So it's very important. Now let's finish up with this emerging issue of urban and suburban deer. If you look at the FBCC campus, the UM campus, and Kalispell, Thompson Falls, Helena, Deer are thriving in towns, and the challenge is, how do you control the numbers of them? And some people are starting to talk about, and have talked about, sterilization. It's very difficult. You have to capture the deer sterilized. Not, not very practical. Oh, no. And then in Helena, they've been using hazing and removal, actual lethal removal. But it's a very, very um, touchy subject, because a lot of people that, that have deer in their yards and so on, like I remember in Thompson Falls when I was an um, outreach person and visited there, in, in other places, 
people kind of tend to adopt them <laughs> and they don't want you to get rid of them. So it's a very touchy subject, but it's one that's going to be emerging uh, more and more as, as things go on. Any observations to close out? I mean, there's not much that would really repel a deer, I think, in terms of like you can't just get an easy repellent to prevent them from showing up and like <laughs> hanging out in, in the towns. Well, actually, there is a deer repellent you can use. It's blood meal, but it's, it's not mm. that effective. So that's all the time we have for this edition of the FVCC Nature Journal. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. I'm John Fraley.